0: Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Revelations chapter 1, verses 12 through 13 says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. This is a moment in John's end of life, stranded on an island called Patmos where he's been exiled. All of his friends have been martyred, literally all of them. The church he pastored, has now gone through Pastor Paul, Timothy, and now him, and he's now exiled. And he's wrestling with the question, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus in the midst of persecution, in the midst of people literally losing their life? And he opens up this book of Revelation having this vision of Jesus, the same Jesus he spent three years with. I'm just going to Let you think about that as we (laughs) ponder. The same Jesus he spent three years with that he knew as a friend, knew intimately. He's the one who recorded that at the Last Supper, he was leaning up against the chest of Jesus. All of a sudden has a very different vision of Jesus. He sees him enthroned, clothed like white like white as snow, eyes blazingly fire. When he speaks, a sword comes out of his mouth. I mean, this is a radical vision of Jesus. But how it starts out for me maybe would have been the most encouraging to the early church, and it's not just what Jesus is like, but it's where Jesus is. And if you notice, he's standing in the middle of seven lampstands. Those seven lampstands represent seven different churches, Most likely just the church at that time. And what John is communicating in this letter to these different churches is Jesus hasn't gone anywhere. He's standing in the midst. He's in the midst of the, and he calls these churches lampstands. And I had a mentor one time ask me, what's what's your lampstand look like? Now, many of you guys know this community started about five years ago. And if you were to ask me five years ago, I would have given you a list. I probably had it written down. Um, But the reality is I had no idea. And five years into this, I feel like there's actually some clarity into the type of lampstand that Jesus has created. And so what we're doing in this series is that we're identifying a couple things. Number one, that we recognize that Jesus is in our midst. But also we're trying to identify what is our unique wiring gift and contribution to the world. And by doing that, we've identified six different values that we believe to be true of our church. But I want to give you a visual of what this looks like rather than a list, which was kind of how we've been presenting in the last couple of weeks. I want you to think of it as kind of concentric circles, all kind of orbiting around one. And that center being the, the circle of communion. Communion is the is the value, it's the conviction, it's the culture that everything else flows out of. And this isn't just something that we came up with. If We believe if you were to look at the entire story arc of scripture and the life, teachings, death, resurrection of Jesus, all of this points to a theme of God wanting to be with his people. And so that for us as a church is really the foundation of everything that we do is that we could have communion with God once again. And that if you feel far from God, that you'd be brought near. If your heart has grown cold or callous, that it would be revived. And that we would find ourselves in what the authors of the New Testament call abiding. Think of the word abode. It's making your home with Jesus and him in you. And once we understand communion properly, what we understand is everything else begins to start having clarity. Our conviction is connected to our communion with Jesus. We believe and hold to the teachings of Jesus because of our relationship with him. Our creativity is a reflection of our communion with Jesus. We are reflecting the very image of God as a creator. Our compassion is because we have been shown compassion by Jesus in that communion, in that relationship Our contribution flows out of our communion with a generous God who not only gave us things, but gave him himself to us. And so when you begin to start looking at all of these things, you look at communion and conviction and creativity and compassion. You look at what what Stevie just talked about, Jesus. (laughs) Look at what Stevie just talked about. Community, that community is a reflection not of what we think community is. It's a reflection of the communion we have with Jesus. Now, that all makes sense, but I also want you to imagine what this would look like of these five separated from communion. You see, conviction separated from our... Our our conviction separated from our communion with Jesus means it'll lead to self-righteousness. Our creativity separated from communion with Jesus is going to lead to our own self-glorification and trying to have self-actualization. Our compassion removed from communion with Jesus is actually going to lead to a Messiah complex Our contribution, apart from communion with Jesus, is going to lead to a transactional sense, and our community is going to lead to some sort of system that's going to need people more than what we can give. But all of this, when it's connected to communion, works. And this is our last week. We're going to be focusing on the last element of this we've yet to talk on, that's compassion. So for those who are taking notes, I want you to consider three things. Number one, that we serve a God of compassion, Secondly, that we are called to be a people of compassion. And thirdly, that we are all, as individuals, people or persons receiving that compassion. And so what I want to do is I want to be looking at that that word, that Greek word for compassion. And unfortunately, there's four of them. And so I just wanted to focus on one. The one that you see most common, specifically if it's ever given as a command that we are to be compassionate, is the Greek word ilios. And Ilios is most oftentimes translated as mercy or acts of mercy. But the word that's second most commonly used is a little bit more complicated word. It's "splaknitzomai." And splachnitsomai is this Greek word that comes from the Greek word "splankna," which is your intestines. How strange, right? And what this Greek word is is... It's the interning of your stomach, meaning that you feel something so much that you're feeling it at a physiological level. Interestingly enough, this Greek word is used 12 times in the New Testament, all of them found in the Gospels, none of them found in the letters or the epistles later on. And eight of those 12 times are, described, are describing Jesus' emotion. And the other four are Jesus describing through a parable someone else's emotion. And what I found really fascinating about this is Number one is that Jesus reveals to us that he is an emotional being. And that might not be like a huge revelation for you, but for decades, the church has done a poor job knowing what to do with emotions. They've been viewed as dangerous. You should be suppressing them. But when you look at the life of Jesus, he's an emotional being. But of all the emotions that Jesus shared, none of them are named more than compassion. Compassion is the number one emotion that Jesus is referred to as and is named in his life more than anything else. But this compassion isn't just he's merciful. He doesn't just have pity. It means that he's gut-wrenched. It's probably the the most proper biblical translation. And I don't know if you've ever felt like that. You felt so much compassion that you've been gut-wrenched before. You're just like, oh my gosh. Uh, For me, this has happened in moments where my kids have been severely hurt. (laughs) And they're in pain, so am I. I remember a few years ago, right, it was like Christmas Eve, we were getting ready to go to our Christmas Eve service. And our daughter Zoe uh, tripped, ran into the corner of a wall and then split her eye open. And we had to bring her in and, oh my gosh, it was so bad. Jen's no use. When there's blood, it's just like, she's like, sorry, this is your department. I'm like, what? How did I sign up for this? And so, and she's like, she's like, dad, is it bad? And I'm like, oh no, it's not that bad. And inside of my gut wrench, I'm like, oh my gosh. And we go in there and she's asking me, she's like, dad, is it gonna hurt to get stitches? And I'm just like, no, the worst (laughs) is over. And so as a dad, I'm trying to like present this like strong facade and inside, what am I feeling? Right? I'm feeling compassion, a specific type of compassion. It's likenitoma. They're like the, my stomach literally feels sick. I want to read you, with that in mind, that kind of that kind of level of intensity, that physiological, visceral reaction. I want to read you some of the moments that Jesus had. Matthew 9.36 says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When he went ashore, this is in Matthew 14.14, 14, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew 20.34, And Jesus in compassion touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Mark one forty one, Moved with pity. Or compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. Mark eight two. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Luke 7.13, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Luke 15.20, which we'll spend more time on tonight, tells us the parable of the prodigal son. And when the prodigal son takes the father's inheritance, squanders it on reckless living, comes to his senses, come back. Matthew 15, 20 says, and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt what? Compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Frederick Buechner, the writer says this, compassion is sometimes the fatal capacity for feeling what it is like to live inside somebody else's skin. It is the knowledge that there can never really be any peace and joy for me until there is peace and joy finally for you too. Jesus is living this life that immediately puts himself in somebody else's skin. By the way, there's a theological term for this called the incarnation. He literally, God, divinity, wrapped himself in flesh. To what? to um, to relate and to connect to who you are. Now, I mean, let's not not get this too heady. I want you to actually think about your situation right now, your circumstances, your struggles, your pains, your losses, your griefs. When you approach God, when you imagine God, do, do you sense him almost keeled over, just being like, man, I'm so sorry. Like, I feel that with you, for you. And I don't know I do, but so oftentimes, because, because of our high view of God, which we should absolutely have, we have a hard time categorizing him as someone who actually can feel at that level of empathy and sympathy for us. But when we look at the emotions of Jesus, the number one emotion that is named is this high level intensity compassion. But what's amazing, that's not just Jesus. If you go back to the Old Testament, arguably one of the most important verses in the Bible, and I don't know how you judge that, but this one might be there because this is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible, meaning the Bible quotes this verse when any other verse, and it's a time when God reveals his name to Moses. And so Moses, he's just been given the Ten Commandments, and he asks to see God's presence. It says, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. By the way, whenever you see the Lord in your Bible, in all capitals, it means Yahweh. But the translators and the Jewish people won't translate that because of the holiness of God. It says, then he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, meaning Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is the name of God. So after he pronounces Yahweh, the very next word out of his mouth is compassion. I mean, what does that do to your theology? How does that reorient you towards the disposition of God? John Comer wrote an entire book based on this one passage in Exodus called God Has a Name. In the book he says when God describes himself, he doesn't start with how powerful he is or how he knows everything there is to know or how he's been around since before time and space and there's no one else like him in the universe. That's all true. But apparently to God, it's not the most important thing. When God describes himself, he starts with his name. Then he talks about what we call his character. He is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in love and faithfulness and on down the list. So my friends, if we are to have a clear view of God, we must see him as compassionate. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us collectively as his people, as people who claim to follow this Jesus? Well, it means that we cannot separate our allegiance to Jesus and our compassion for others. Those two things are synonymous. Those those two things can never be severed. To the point, look at what John says in his letter to his church. Chapter 3, verses 16 and 1 John says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is one of those, those verses that really, once you actually let this sit into your body, actually kind of messes with you. Because it says it, especially in an area that's surrounded by material wealth, it just says if you have resources and you see your brother suffering, your sister suffering, and you do nothing about it, the question is posed, how does the love of God live inside of you? Which the assumption that John is making here is that God's love directly affects your compassion towards others, and if it doesn't, you do not have a clear understanding of God's love which means all of this ties back to who God is, his disposition towards love. I would argue that every sacrificial act of Jesus, including the grand act of him dying on the cross, is motivated by this primary emotion. He's compassionate. It's at the core of his name, it's at the core of his nature. And so what I wanna do is, I wanna ask the question, Well, how do we become a people of compassion that accurately reflects the nature and the quality and the character of God? And I just wanna share some good news with you guys before I dive into some practical things of like how and when and why and what do we do? Um, As I was writing this sermon this week, um, I normally, Thursdays is like my sermon writing day and um, normally I have my phone off and I'm just trying to focus and I'm, I'm working on it all during the week, but Thursdays, like there's no meetings. This Thursday, I kept getting text messages from you guys. I'm not judging you, like it's okay. But literally all of them were you guys talking to me about some act of compassion that you were actively engaged in. I kid you not, I had people contact me that they were sitting with someone in the hospital I had someone contact me who's advocating for a friend. I had someone contact me who's bringing flowers over to someone on their open table. I had someone contact me about our work in Mexico. Like I I was like, I found myself being like, I mean, I gotta really write this sermon on compassion. (laughs) And I found myself kind of chuckling because I was like, oh, I I can't write a sermon on compassion because my church is too compassionate. Like they're just texting me all of these things and details around their activity of compassion. So everything I'm about to say, I just want to say more of an encouragement than like an indictment. This is not like, hey guys, we really got to do better. This is like, I think this is one of the most beautiful things about this church that I get to call home is that this is living and breathing in our midst. So let's kind of work through some questions. Number one is, how do we engage in compassion? Now, I recognize there's people in this room who have the divine gift of compassion. And you don't need to talk on how to be compassionate. A matter of fact, you can't seem to stop. Like it gets you into trouble, right? Like you steer like, in on- oncoming traffic just to help someone in need. And, and this is just like your, your disposition is compassionate. For the rest of us, here's a few thoughts on how to cultivate compassion in our life. Number one, I would just encourage you to start with empathy. Empathy is everything I just talked about. It's putting yourself in someone else's skin. Instead of asking the question, what's wrong with them? My my mentor, Pastor Keith, says, instead of asking what's wrong with them, ask them what wounded them. Like, what caused that? What's going on inside them? Enter into that space of sympathy. Now, the reason I have to bring that up is the reality is we live in a unique generation that is experiencing what psychologists call compassion fatigue. Because of our 24-hour news cycle, because of social media, we are exposed to more traumatic events, more bad news than any generation before us. And as a result within our psyche is we have essentially closed ourselves off to empathy. We don't know how to feel anymore because we're afraid of if we feel, there's too much to feel about. And so this is just just gentle encouragement. As followers of Jesus, we don't have that as an option. We, we get to continue to say, Lord, soften my heart. Help me feel. I don't know if you've prayed that before. I'm like, Lord, help me feel this. Now, we're going to get to this in a second. does not mean that you get to bear everything, nor do you have to save everyone. But we do want to be people who can maintain soft hearts. Secondly, is once you are able to tap into that level of empathy, is that you want to just ask the Lord to help you create availability. This is what's called a ministry of presence. That oftentimes, if someone needs compassion, they're going through a hard time, they're going through grief, you're dealing with those who are dealing with um, great need, lack of resources, poverty. A lot of times, when, what they need more than anything is someone who's just present. Relationally, emotionally, spiritually, you're available to them. Jen's dad, before he passed, wrote a paper instructing airmen on how to deal with people who are grieving and in it, he had this amazing line. He says, the most important thing you can do for someone who's experiencing grief is to show them without words, but with your body language, that there's no other place you'd rather be than with them right there in that moment. And if you've ever walked through traumatic, traumatic loss and things like that, you know the people who are just trying to say the right thing to kind of move on to the next conversation. And those people are willing just to sit with you. It's powerful. Once you've postured yourself for availability, then what I would encourage you to do is to open yourself up to sensitivity, specifically sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit asking you to do in that moment for someone or a group of people who are severely in need, they're struggling with poverty, um, someone in your life is struggling with a sense of loss? It's just asking yourself, what is the Holy Spirit doing? And not just what does he want you to do. This is, should be a question. What is the Holy Spirit already doing, and how can you partner with him in that? Um, Steve Corbert says this, We are not bringing Christ to poor communities. He's been active in these communities since the creation of the world, sustaining them, Hebrews 1-3 says, by his powerful word. Hence, a significant part of working in poor communities involves discovering and appreciating what God has been doing there for a long time. I think you can apply this to any sort of activity of compassion. Assume God has already been at work. And your sensitivity to the Holy Spirit is just to say, Lord, what are you doing? How can I join you in your work? Whether it's socioeconomic, whether it's emotional, whether it's spiritual, whether it's relational, whether it's financial, you're dealing with someone who needs compassion. It's just having that level of sensitivity. And then after you're aware of what the Holy Spirit's doing, then instead of moving generically, move intentionally into that space, and this would just be my encouragement to you. And by, by the way, this is not a science, it's an art form. But oftentimes, where people get into trouble in acts of compassion is they're just, they're too generic. They're like, here's a Bible verse I learned when I was 12, or, or even worse, they're like, hey, that thing you're going through that's really tough, man, yeah, like one time my turtle passed away, I know exactly how you're feeling. Um, and, and what we're doing, and we're good-hearted, we're just reaching for something that like identifies with them, oftentimes that's not the best thing. The reality is you don't know what they're going through. And what you can do is posture yourself to listen. And as you're listening to them and the Holy Spirit, what you can start saying is, Lord, how can I intentionally show compassion and love in this situation? Richard Stearns, who at one time was the president of World Vision, wrote an amazing book I'd recommend called The Whole in Our Gospel. And he says, as every person in crisis is in need of something unique to that situation, What has God given you? Moses had a stick, David had a slingshot, and Paul had a pen. Mother Teresa possessed a love for the poor, Billy Graham a gift for preaching, and Joni Erickson taught a disability. What do they have in common? A willingness to let God use whatever they had, even when it didn't seem very useful. If you will assess what you have to offer in terms of your time, your treasure, and your talents, you will have a better understanding of how you might uniquely serve. I I love this. Because I think a lot of times within Christian circles, when it comes to compassion, we start actually, this is so strange, we actually start judging people who don't seem to carry the same level of compassion that we do, or they don't care about the same things that we care about, or they don't approach that compassion the same way that you would approach it. And I love what Richard Stern says. He says, listen, what's in your hand? How has God wired you? What do you have to offer? think one of the most amazing stories that's been developing within the life of our church is the unique community contribution that's been going on in our partnership in Mexico. Because people were like, hey, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, I'm a doctor, I'm a nurse, and so the medical team's been done. Someone's been like, hey, I've been, I've been trained and studied in food sustainability. And so there's now a whole team that's working with that. There's people who's been like, hey, I can help with creativity and, and, and creating like livelihood development, I'm like great. And it's just asking, what's in my hand? How has God made me? And then the kind of the second question is, where do I find my heart burning? Right, where can I find, join in the work and the, act, the activity of God? Lastly, sometimes it may not be something that you need to do. Maybe it's something that you need to say or something you need to advocate for. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. What does it mean to be an advocate? What does it mean to care so much about someone's story that it becomes your story that you're willing to share and to fight for? And then just the last piece of advice in terms of how we do this, it's just the word consistency. Everyone can be moved to compassion in a moment. But it takes someone really infused with the love of Christ to have a level of consistency. I'm going to continue to show up. I'm going to continue to do this. Why? Because we have been consistently shown compassion by Jesus. And so I would just strongly encourage you, as you partner with God in showing compassion, um, set your pace at a sustainable level so that you can be there for the long haul, continue to walk with them. I know in moments where we have needed compassion most in our life, people have rallied so quickly. But the people who like, call you three months afterwards and they're like, hey, how are you doing? Like, It shocks you. You're like, wow, you're still thinking about this thing I was going through. Um, when someone says, hey, how, you know, we've been praying for this. It's those moments of consistency that go a long way. Maybe even tonight, you just want to just take a note. Maybe there's a friend, a family member, maybe there's a certain cause or a social um, justice initiative you've been a part of that you've just kind of had on the back burner. Just send them a text tonight, shoot them an email to say, hey, how's it going? How can I continue to be partnering with you in that? The next question is just a question well, who? Okay, we know how to show compassion. Who do we show compassion to um, in, a, in a biblical framework? The, the Bible has categories of who needs our compassion. And in its most simple form, it looks like this. Orphans, widows, the poor, and the stranger. Old Testament to New Testament, you will see these categories repeated again and again. And again you cannot you cannot open up your bible very far and not find some reference to orphans widows the poor and the stranger. And so that's a good place for us to start. James 1:27 says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now you think about a patriarchal ancient culture. If you're an orphan or if you're a widow, you have no access to any socioeconomic opportunities. You have no opportunity for relational connection. You have very little opportunities for any sort of cultural advancement. Um, most likely you are actually ostracized even from the spiritual community. And so it is woven into the scriptures that we care for them. Now, I love James' verse because it's so point. Religion that our God, our Father accepts, it's pure and faultless, is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unpolluted by the world. I always thought that was like a second thing. It's like care for those in need and don't do sin. The older I'm getting, the more I'm studying scripture, the more I'm really, those are actually the same thing. We keep ourselves unpolluted by the world by caring for orphans and widows. It, it actually connects us two things. Now, the, the reason I want to pause on this is a little bit of a sidebar here, is I grew up, probably the past 20, 30 years, there has been this mantra repeated in the church, and it goes like this. It's not about religion, it's about relationship. And I understand the sentiment. It's It's... It's beautiful because I think that for a long time, the church forgot about the relational dynamic of God. But I think that we tr- we've we kind of traded in theological truth for a nice cliche. Because according to James 20, 1.27, there is a religion that we should not be getting rid of. There is a religion that God accepts that he finds pure and faultless. And that religion looks like caring for orphans and widows. So let's let's keep leaning into the relationship thing but could we maybe actually find ourselves recapturing a passion for religion but this type of religion Um, think about the even the colloquialism that we have like oh man i do that religiously what are we saying it's actually it's systematic it's patterned it's intentional and so if i can encourage you in one thing let's become systematic and intentional and pattern after compassion and care for those who are finding themselves in need or in destitute Let's have that be our religion, and let's continue to foster a relationship with Jesus. Matthew 25, Jesus gives this really stunning um, insight into what the afterlife is going to be like. He says, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Because in this moment, Jesus does not identify with the person who gives water, who cares for the sick, who feeds the hungry. Jesus identifies with the hungry, the imprisoned, the sick, the thirsty, the thirsty, the strange, and the unclothed. Jesus says, I'm there. So when you do these things for me, Proverbs, the Old Testament says, when you give to the poor, you lend to God. Randy Alcorn says, the safest way for you to transfer your money into heaven is to give it to the poor. I mean, this, this all throughout scripture, this seems to be very, very clear. We don't get to separate the two. One, one scholar made his own version of this when he says this, for I was hungry while you had all you needed. I was thirsty, but you drank bottled water, not plastic and Encinitas, but still bottled um, I was a stranger, and you wanted me deported. I needed clothes, but you needed more clothes. I was sick, and you pointed out the behaviors that led to my sickness. I was in prison, and you said I was getting what I deserved. So who do we have compassion on? The very first passage that describes a church Acts 2:44 says that all the believers were together and had everything in common they sold property and possessions to give to listen to anyone who had need meaning who do we have compassion on anyone who has need would the lord stir our hearts towards them now if you're an analytical mind like myself Um, you may at this point be starting to feel like, yeah, but could this go too far? Could this like turn into enablement? What about if there's like, you know, what if it becomes toxic or dangerous, things like that? So just just a quick moment on that. Um, There's a lot to be said about this, but this this is what I would say. Jesus was more compassionate than any of us in the room, all of us combined. Jesus did not map out his life based on the compassionate needs in front of him. He mapped out his life based on obedience to his father's will. Meaning that there was times he went from town to town while there was still great need in that town. There was times that he was on his way to go do something incredibly important like raise a child from the dead and then he stopped to heal a woman who had an issue of bleeding for 12 years. Jesus was not crisis led and navigated. He was, his, he was led by his father. And so my advice to you is when it comes to compassion, this is specifically for those of you who, are, who can be so bent towards compassion, it's to the detriment of your own soul, sometimes your own physical body and your health. This might be encouraging you. What is the spirit asking you to do? And keep in step with him. And one way that you know this is Jesus says, hey, my, my burden is easy my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So if at any point you are doing compassionate work in the name of Jesus and it is costing your soul, your physical well-being, it doesn't mean that it won't be taxing and sacrificial, but if at some point it is drawing you away from what Jesus has called you into in terms of your life, then it's not asking you to put it down like, well, I guess I did too much of saying, what does this look like? Also, your you staying a step with the holy spirit um sp- specifically will not put you in a place that is and i just want to say this specifically um i've, I've found that there are, are people who find themselves continuing to offer compassion in, in specifically toxic and sometimes dangerous relationships and this is this is really really important we are not bringing God to people. God's already there. That's so huge, because if at some point you need to take a Sabbath, a break, or even leave a situation or circumstance, God has not left. And we can trust and have peace and rely that, Lord, you are the God of compassion. You are at work. And so that means I get to operate within the gift of my limits i get to be in line with the holy spirit and i get to trust that you are at work even when i can't be and this goes from the very mundane levels then it goes to the very extreme levels but i would just encourage you that do we always give compassion no but we're always compassionate but if we're following in obedience say lord how do we give compassion where do we give it and how do we do it in such a way that is going to to bring about your kingdom in the best possible way Next question I wanna address is where do we give compassion? Um, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but I just wanna offer you three different spheres for you to consider. Personal, social, and systemic. So who in your life needs compassion right now? A family member, a roommate, someone you encounter tomorrow? Who needs compassion? Secondly, uh, this look at a more social, social or cultural level. Like, are there groups of people? Did you know the number one time Jesus says he had compassion was on crowds? Groups of people. He has it on individuals for sure. But oftentimes, Jesus sees a crowd of people, a group of people, and he's moved, gut wrenched compassion. And so, one question might be like maybe you're doing great and just having compassion to the person right in front of you. But maybe that there is a, a need, a cause, a, a nonprofit. There's something that you're like, man, that, those, that people group or this thing really moves my heart. Lean into that. And then the last one that I feel like the church definitely can recapture is just showing compassion just at a systemic level. Letting our love lead us to actually changing things that are going to affect the distribution of resources and goods to people. And, that can, and we can disagree, by the way, on how that even happens. But I think sometimes it feels like it's much safer just to keep compassion at a personal level. And I think sometimes God says, let, God, let compassion move you to thinking about how we can address those things at a broader scale, whether it's starting your nonprofit, whether it's, it's not getting into the entrapment of the political circus, but it's actually saying, like, Lord, is there a way for me to engage in the political sector in a way that would bring about your kingdom? Just understanding like, how do all of those things work together in such a way that we can actually be agents of compassion at the personal, the social, and the systemic level. And so for us as a church, there's a couple of things I just wanted you to share, to share in terms of what we're doing. Um, if, if this is your church you give here, I'm a, I'm, for me this is a big deal, the number one thing that our, our tithe and our offering gets distributed to are acts of compassion, Number one thing. Um, more than operations, even staff, it goes to helping people in need, both in our community, outside of our community. Um, and with that, you might be like, well, how do you know? How do you know what, where to, to participate in compassionate acts and generous acts towards people? There's, and there's really a few things that we look at. Number one, where is the spirit leading? Number two, where is there a relational connection? so that we can continue to maintain that. Next is that we want to be able to ask the question, who are the most vulnerable? Who are our orphans, widows, poor, and strangers? Why do we connect with places like Generate Hope? These are women coming out of human trafficking who are dealing with incredible amounts of trauma that are needing a lot of care, spiritually, physically, emotionally, relationally. It's why we work with um, asylum seekers. All Every single person I have met, a Ciudad de Dios, has been fleeing for their life. So how do we care for the most vulnerable, those affected by crisis and tragedy? Um, we have people in our community who are actively working right now in, with, um, in Lahaina and Maui, and that's, they're, they're, they're relationally connected. Um, and lastly, um, we believe that the greatest help we can give is attached to the person of Jesus, meaning someone can be complete, and we know this because we live where we live, Someone can have every single physical resource they need, but if they do not have the bread of life and living water, they will continue to be thirsty and hungry. And so our compassionate acts, we always want to be, to be tethered to Jesus because, yes, we want to give practical help and need, but we want the holistic transformation and healing to take place, which leads to a really important question. We've talked a lot about compassion just some practical things, um, but a question that, we should always ask ourselves, as it's become really popular in the business world, just a question of why. Why are we compassionate? And the simple answer is this. You and I are the objects of God's compassion. You showed up here tonight, and whether you know it or not, there is a living God in this room whose disposition towards you is one of compassion, You are the recipient of a compassionate God. And when and only when you realize that, whether you have a natural gifting towards compassion or not, you can't help but start treating people differently, even the ones who are hard. Because we've been shown such great compassion. And it it, it does a few different things. Number one, when we understand that's our why, because we've been shown compassion, it helps us from entering into the compassion space with pride. Like, oh, I'm so, aren't you glad I showed up? Which unfortunately has been kind of some of the posture of the church throughout history. It's Like, thank God I, we're here. Rather than realizing you're in need, I'm in need too. Like, we're, we're mutually in need. In the book, When Helping Hurts, it says, Until we embrace our mutual brokenness, our work with low-income people is likely to do more harm than good. I sometimes unintentionally reduce poor people to objects that I use to fulfill my own need to accomplish something. I'm not okay, and you're not okay, but Jesus can fix his both. That's that's the posture that we have. Francis Schaeffer says, biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. We need to reorient how we see ourselves when we approach the world. Remember Matthew 25, where is Jesus? Is he the one giving the water or receiving it? He's the one receiving it. So likewise, we can do this. Now, um, by the way, Matthew 25, one thing I'd never realized before, I was asked to speak at Biola's mission conference a couple years ago, and they gave me that passage And I'm like, sweet, you know, home run passage. It's like it preaches itself. It's so convicting. But then I started studying it. And at the end of it, you'll notice it says, whatever you've done to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. And what a lot of scholars are now pointing out is that this is not so much just a list of the the poor or the down and out. It's most likely a list of his followers. The least of these or his little ones is a proper translation. If you read in your Bible, oftentimes it's talking about his followers, which actually makes sense of the list. Imprisoned, hungry, thirsty. And so when Jesus is saying, whatever you've done for one of these, he's assuming that his followers are living a type of life that identifies with the poor already. And it's such, I think, a healthy posture for us when we talk about compassion. Listen, you, you, what do we have to bring other than what we've freely been given in terms of what Jesus has been given to us? It's kind of how I want to end our night as we come to the table. We take broken bread and we, we take these cups. And these are symbols of compassion. The broken bread is an invitation not to stay in your brokenness, but to receive his brokenness in exchange for your wholeness. These cups represent his blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It was to make you whole. It was to save you. These are elements of his compassion. We get to receive that. What's interesting is that the, the story we have referenced a couple of times tonight, the prodigal son, uh, most of that parable is spent talking about the second son who gets very little fanfare and then the first. So I want to read you this as we prepare for communion. So keep in mind the father has compassion sees the son from a long way off runs towards him throws in this feast celebrates him. And in verse 25 it says meanwhile the older son was in the field. When he came near the house he heard music and dancing so he called one of the servants and asked him, "What's going on?" But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fat and calf for him. My son, listen to the compassion of his voice. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because your brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The parable ends right there as a cliffhanger. You don't know if the older brother goes in or out. That was intentional. Jesus is leaving the story open because it's Israel's story, and it's your story, and it's my story. You see, God's so compassionate, he'll make you uncomfortable. And sometimes God's compassion is so radical that we'll find ourselves outside of the home that we've been invited into, that all along we got to feast and celebrate with our father, yet we found ourselves dutifully working hard to try and earn our way back in when the first brother figured it out. He figured out the disposition of his father way before the older brother did. So as we come to the table tonight, have you have you been waiting on the outside? And tonight, you just hear the compassionate voice of your Father saying, everything I have is yours, even my own son. Come. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.